Listen now to The Proof Podcast Season 2, The Murder at the Warehouse. How'd you find out something had happened? My mom called me and said, Lori, the police found a body, and they're pretty sure it's Renee. Right, right away, you thought right Jake. Right away. In my head already, I thought it was Jake. Season 2 of Proof is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. This is a CBC Podcast. As far as I know, the James forward seals, I see him once or twice a month in the, riding in that white uh, Malibu car, Edward Chevrolet car. That's Kenny Bird now. He's here with us in the van in the moments after telling us that James Ford Seal is alive. He's been reported as dead in the media. The media, most people think he's dead. Right, no, he's not dead. That's the same James Seal that I know of. That's supposed to be him live right on that hill there, in that motor home. And is it well known around here that he's alive and well and living over there? Yes, as far as I know, everybody knows he lives here and all, and where he lives at. He's been living here for years. You are listening to Someone Knows Something from CBC Original Podcasts. In Season 3, David Ridgen revisits his 2007 documentary, Mississippi Cold Case. Teaming up with Thomas Moore to investigate the murders of his brother, Charles Moore, and Henry D., two 19-year-olds who were killed by the Ku Klux Klan in 1964. This is Episode 3, The Hornet's Nest. Now you talk about terror. I think you talk about terror. People have been terrorized all my days, all my days. We ought to go in there and get that son of a bitch. You know, I've been, I've been focusing on Marcus. This is the son of a bitch. This is the guy that did all the whooping and the terror, and interrogating and shit. We ought to just, just come down in there on him and, and take him on to, to, to Harper and say, here he is. He made my day. So we just saw James Ford Seal's car drive by. We're going to drive by and see if, uh, see if he comes out of it. We'll okay. see if he's there. There was somebody behind the wheel. It looked like could have been his wife. Okay. Uh, so let's just get up there. I want to. I'll bring the camera up when we get past. Okay. So let's uh, let's see what we see here. Down a driveway at the bottom of a hill next to a red brick bungalow, sits a white Fleetwood Bounder motorhome, parked next to an open gazebo, which serves as a sort of outdoor living room. An elderly couple, one a gray-haired balding man, glasses with knobby elbows tucked into a plaid short-sleeved shirt, the other, a shorter, dark, silver-haired woman, are collecting groceries in plastic bags out of the back seat of a white Chevy. We gotta get over in this direction over here. I zoom in and try to steady my camera. This has been one of many drive-bys since we first discovered the person's identity at the end of my telephoto. And this would be the best picture I'd get. It looked like it. Yep. Yep. It is him, James Seal, the man who, along with other Klansmen, brutally murdered Henry D. and Charles Moore. 
So do you think that he is accepted in the community? Because as like, far as I know, it yeah. looks like everybody here in this community accepted. When we started from Colorado, we wanted to speak to Charles Marcus Edwards. Now, with James Ford's seal, we had someone new to focus on. And as we drop Kenny off back at the BP station, our plans begin to shift. Seal in the 1960s was known for his unpredictable violence as a member of the clan. Edwards was thought of as more of a clan functionary, even a weak link, since he had talked to the FBI on the day of his arrest in November 1964, revealing some of the details of the crime. But since their arrest and release on $5,000 bond, Edwards has not admitted anything to anyone. Hey, Jeremy Mitchell, this is Thomas James Moore. Hey, Mr. Moore, I was just trying to call you. Well, I just turned my phone on. Ah, uh, no problem. Yeah. Do you want to get together in the morning? Tomorrow will be fine. I need to get those FBI documents out and look at them. Well, I got, you know, I uh, you did give me the nine pages, but I understand you have the, the whole pack. No, no, I got, I got a stack of stuff. Okay. So. Okay. Hey, Jerry? Yep. James Seals uh -huh. is alive and well. Oh, uh, okay. He lives in Roxon, Mississippi. And I have him on video, on camcorder. Like yeah. 30 minutes after I hit Franklin County. Uh -huh. That's driving 15 minutes and then stopping at a store to get some boiled peanuts. Right. Within 30 minutes, I knew that he was alive because of the first person I talked to told me that. How about that? Now, Jerry, you know, I don't know where you got the information. About being dead? Yeah. Thanks for his family. I found out later that Seal's son, James Jr., who lived in Alabama, helped spread the rumor to the media that his father was dead. Well, I'm glad to know he's, he's alive and well. Yeah. He's, uh... Uh, if you can get David to talk to him, my dad will do an interview, but man, he's a piece of work. Yeah. He is a piece of work. Edwards, I got a different impression of than I did Seal. Yeah. Seal was just absolutely unreconstructed. I mean, there's just no question about it. I have talked to whites, and I have talked to blacks. And they both say the same thing. And I cannot understand how Franklin Countyans can afford to have a renegade, dangerous person that they is afraid of right. in the community and nobody doing anything about it. I cannot understand that. It took an Army veteran right. of 30 years in the military that has retired, <laughs> come back here and just get on the ground and talk to people. Just talking to normal people. Look, I didn't actually print that he was dead, but I, I had had somebody in his family tell me that, but obviously that was, uh, they were lying about it, obviously. We made plans to meet Jerry the next day and said goodbye. And I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'll be there. They will not have a bad day down here. Every day better and better, you know what I mean? Thomas wanted to share news of our trip, 
with a couple of others. Trying to respect these graves and not walk on top of these bodies. Kind of like, got my way through here. The old Mount Olive Cemetery is where Thomas's family, his mother Maisie, father Charlie, and brother Charles were buried. We walk over grassy humps and past sun-bleached lambs and angels perched on leaning stones. That's, that's his grave. Charles Eddie Moore's tombstone was etched by hand, weather-worn and modest, hidden in the back right corner of the cemetery grounds. I gotta give him a new tombstone. I don't know why this been defaced. You see that? This was a local guy that did this. Didn't spell his name right. I take a closer look. Charles is hand drawn into the cement as Shirley, and last name Moore is missing the final e. I mean, it's even turned wrong. No, <laughs> oh, that's my father's grave. That's my mother's grave. What does it say on the tombstone? It says, Charles Eddie Moore, born August 10th, 1944, buried July 1964. Darling, we will miss you. Then on the bottom, that says, anywhere, anywhere in glory. It's all right. That's what it said. Anywhere in glory. On another trip, a cousin of Henry D's brought me to the graveyard where Henry had been buried. At the time, the family feared that any headstone could be desecrated, so there's no marker. I asked Thomas about the service that the Moore family held for Charles. It was a small, it was a small funeral, mostly of the community up here and relatives, a few classmates. It was sad, didn't nobody talk. The preacher didn't talk anything about the violent act or nothing like that. Mama requested that I wear my uniform and she asked me to walk in front of the casket into the church. I don't know why she asked me to do that, but I did that. Had on my class A khaki uniform. He, he had a nickname, Nub, N-U-B. That's everybody knew Nub. Yeah, that was Mama and them called him, Nub. Never, I never called him Charles Moore. I called him Nub. You could say anything to your brother right now. What would you say to him? I was telling him, Charles Moore, you know, I miss you. Your death brought hard things on us. Your senseless death. So what I'm doing is trying to figure out who is responsible and hold that guy or those people, me via Mississippi, Franklin County, and the state of Mississippi accountable. But I miss you, I miss the whole family. So rest in peace. I like this word, 
dig it for the day, we read on the bottom, say, anywhere in glory, it's all right. As we leave the graveyard in the van, Thomas tells me about the last time he was here, in 1999-2000, during Connie Chung's ABC 2020 investigation. They brought me down. I met Connie Chung over in Meadville. We drove up to the cemetery, interviewed, took pictures, and that was it. The whole thing lasted about, about four hours, maybe. The drive up, setting up, the little interview we had, and that was it. Comparing to what we're doing now, you've been in Colorado three, three, four days. We've been shooting and talking, get horse talking. So there was no involvement for me from kind of Chong about the case. Humid sun and the smell of steamed pine permeates the air. Thomas and I have driven as deep as we can into the Homochito National Forest without losing phone signal. We thought it was a fitting location for what we planned next. Hello? Hello, can I speak to Mr. Edwards, please? Who is this? My name's David Ridgen, and I'm calling with uh, Thomas Moore. Can I just talk to you for a couple of seconds? Sir, Mr. Moore's, Mr. Moore's down here trying to... I guess he hung up. Our thinking was that phoning first might be the best option, being less confrontational, while still leaving open the option of knocking on Edward's door later on. Hello? Hello, Mr. Edwards. Sorry. I, Mr. Moore just wants to talk to you for... Like, all he wants to do is talk to you man to man. Edwards didn't seem overly open to talking on the phone. What do you think? I told you that. Yeah, that motherfucker ain't gonna talk to me. But you tried. I don't believe... I don't believe you can. Coward, man. You didn't do it, why you don't want to talk to him about it? Let's, let's get it all. Let's, let's, let's convince me we should be looking for somebody else. We decide to try once more, this time with Thomas speaking to Edwards directly. I think the best thing I said, David, is to ever tell me why you was arrested 40 years ago. You don't think he'll hang up? Yeah, he gonna hang up. As soon as he, as soon as he said, as soon as I said this is Thomas Moore, he's gonna hang up. Edward, this is Thomas Moore. In the name of our God, will you please talk to me? Just don't... Okay, I know. No, no, no. <clears throat> Hello, we are not available now. Please leave your name and number after the beep. Edwards, this is Thomas Moore. In the name of our God, will you please talk to me? I need closure in the killing of my brother 41 years ago and you was named and you was arrested 41 years ago one of the two guys tell me why the FBI arrested you why they have so many documents on you if you're not the guy then let's close it 
There's no sense in you and I both going through hell for the rest of our life. I'm not a violent guy. I want to talk to you in a neutral gown, man to man, face to face. Just the two of us. We set Edwards aside for now. It's hot, man. Eventually, we decide to proceed along several tracks, try to continue approaching Edwards, the potential weak link in the case, to get him to talk, and simultaneously apply pressure on Seal, whom Thomas felt was more dangerous, by using other tactics. But first, we had to make a trip to Jackson, Mississippi. There you come, right there. There you go. All right. How you doing? Jerry Mitchell is an appealing mixture of laid-back southern charm and professionalism, dressed in a sharp blue shirt and tie. Not overdressed, but certainly a fashionable step above Thomas and I, sweating through our ball caps, t-shirts, and shorts. He's also become something of an icon in civil rights-era journalism, reporting on cases and, through that reporting, helping to move those cases into the courtroom. Byron de la Beckwith, Sam Bowers, Bobby Cherry, just some of the perpetrators Mitchell has played a role in bringing to justice. So we should sit down and chat with you sure, a little bit. Sure, sure, absolutely. Figure out how we're going to eat this catfish. We've got to talk about that too. In 1999-2000, Jerry and ABC TV had obtained copies of some of the original pages from the FBI investigation that was conducted into the Dean Moore case nine pages of which Jerry had already shared with Thomas. Turn it off. Some of the last stories on this. Uh-huh. When I talked to Seal, what Seal said to me. Oh. But here's the uh, stack of FBI stuff. Just outside of Jerry's cubicle in the Clarion Ledger's busy newsroom sits a banker's box, and there's a stack of papers piled on top. All this about this key? Yeah. <sighs> Told you. If y'all want to take and make copies of them, it's fine with me. What I would this represented about half of the files that I would eventually lay my hands on throughout the process of filming from various sources around the USA. Mitchell's generous handoff was a treasure trove of unredacted names and addresses for everyone the FBI interviewed, including information about Dean Moore's remains and the day that Edwards and Seal were arrested. Thomas wished he could have had the files years earlier, and with mountains of evidence like this, the question remains and festers, why did Lennox Foreman, the state district attorney, do nothing? Two months after Charles Marcus Edwards and James Ford Seal were arrested, Foreman asked to have the affidavits against them, the murder charges, dismissed without prejudice saying that he needed additional information or evidence if he was to consider moving forward. Let me ask you, why do you think he didn't prosecute? Well, I, he, he insisted that he, he didn't have enough evidence to do it, but of course the FBI agents that I've talked to who were involved in investigating the case said that they presented him evidence, and then when that wasn't enough, they went out and got more and brought it back to him, and he just kept refusing. So uh, the case has languished. I mean, it was reopened back in... Uh, 2000, I think it was, uh, when they found out that the killings could have taken place on federal property and the FBI looked at that, but they decided not to pursue this case. And so it's just languished all, all this time. 
What do you think the chances are? I mean, Thomas is, I guess, what do you think of Thomas's endeavor now? I think it's great. I, I think the huge plus for this case are these FBI documents, the fact that you've got right. almost a thousand pages of FBI documents. That's so much, in terms of cases, that makes it so much easier. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right. but it means it's going to be easier to pursue this case than right. it would be, say, uh, the Emmett Till case or some of these right. other cases. So they basically had no investigation at the time. Right. So you do have the names of potential suspects even beyond the two guys that got arrested. So people who might have information about the case, people who can be questioned, and potential witnesses and all those kinds of things. So as with all these cases, it's difficult. It's difficult to piece these things together. It's difficult to prosecute, but it can't be done. We, and we've seen right. that. We saw right. it with the case right. of the three civil rights workers and uh, the Benchester White case, the right. uh, four little girls that were killed in the Birmingham church bombing. All those things were basically a lot of them pieced together because of uh, FBI investigations, the documents that uh, were generated originally. As a matter of fact, we was on the way here Right. And David talked to FBI in Washington, and the first thing the guy said, well, first of all, the FBI, the FBI didn't investigate. What are you talking about? We yeah. stopped on the road and faxed him the nine pages. Yeah, exactly. And then he called back the day later and said, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Well, that's like originally with this case, I don't know if you remember that or not, originally when I asked the FBI about this case, they said all the documents in the case had been right. destroyed. Right. Well, then I ended up, someone I know had gotten access to some of those documents. And so then I basically wrote a story and said, hey, right. wait a minute. Right. 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 <laughs> These documents haven't, haven't been destroyed. They do still exist. And so eventually I was able to get you know, copies of the whole thing. So With the file in hand, I'd have to read through it all at least a few times and track down all the witnesses I could, including old FBI or Mississippi Highway Patrol agents to see what they remembered. I have to hope that some of the best witnesses would still be alive over 40 years later. If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bearbrook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Hi there. We're here to see Mr. Lampton okay. at noon. Okay. Buoyed by our meeting with Jerry Mitchell and our growing pile of evidence, we left for our first meeting with the federal U.S. attorney for Southern Mississippi, Dunn Lampton. Did you know that Thomas and I were in the same unit in the military? <laughs> As it turns out, Lampton and Thomas had served in the same Army division at the same time, though they did not know each other. Lampton, a colonel, and Thomas, a command sergeant major. I retired, well, me. What you retired you know, command sergeant major. That's that's impressive. Oh yeah. Okay. Wow, I'm real proud of that. Well, you should be. You should be. Dunn Lampton, with his dry sense of humor and casual lack of ceremony, all in a suit and tie, made a positive first impression. Is it on? Could you turn it on? 
He's sitting behind a wooden desk in a gigantic corner office in the Department of Justice's Jackson, Mississippi office tower. We were mobilized and we were made a, we were attached to the 4th Infantry Division. The coincidental connection breaks the ice quickly and we soon get down to business. Federal prosecutors have to prove that it happened on federal property. State prosecutor doesn't have to do that. And what I want to do and what I will do, and it hasn't happened before, is to get everybody around one table that has any responsibility or authority and see what we have. A Republican, Lampton was appointed by George W. Bush on September 7, 2001. But he'd never heard about the D. Moore case until I'd contacted him the week before our initial meeting. I'm going to review that. Then I'll make sure that, that Ronnie Harper has all the evidence that I have. And, you know, we just, I mean, we owe it to the people that were treated so poorly. And it hurt to just talk about it. It hurt me last night to just read stuff that I, you know, you read about stuff like this. What person would do, what country, what enemy do we have that would do stuff like that to human beings? It's just... But we're, I, see, we're seeing it today. Oh, yeah. With the terrorists. Yeah. And yeah. what we've got to understand, oh, yeah. Yeah. the Klan was a terrorist organization back in the 60s. Right. And they, they had a lot of power because people were afraid of them, and people are not afraid of them anymore. We just need to just get a general statement, I guess, or as much of a statement as you can as to where the case is now and what your intentions are. David, right now, my office has made a decision that there was not sufficient evidence to prove that it happened on federal property. We have to be able to prove that. And then there's some problems with the proof as to who actually was involved in the murder. But I had not really looked at this file. That decision was made before I got here. And I will look at the file. I was doing it last night. But if there's you know, sufficient evidence and if we can develop any new leads, we'll go with it. And I'm going to take a personal interest to make sure that it, just like you said, that uh, everything that can be done has been done. And now is the time to right some wrongs that, uh, that have been just too long without any justice for the family. There's no statute of limitations on, on murder. No justice was done back in the 60s. It was just a, a mockery. We're going to take a real careful look at, at this for you. Okay. At least I can do for old my old Sergeant Major. Right. Okay. Old Sergeant never die. That's, That's great. Thanks. Okay. Just, just to get you out. Have a good day, sir. A few weeks later, Lampton gathered local, state, and federal authorities to discuss the Dean Moore case. He announced that in addition to looking at Dean Moore, they would also reevaluate the case of Warless Jackson, another civil rights era case from Natchez, Mississippi. Warless was killed by a car bomb in 1967. Speaking to the press afterwards, Lampton encouraged anyone with information about the cases even those who may have played a role, to speak to investigators as soon as possible. If there's any consideration to be given, Lampton said, it'll be given to people who come forward first. Oh, man. 
So he said he's going to take a personal interest in it. He said he owed that to his sergeant major. That made me feel pretty good. Lampton is your man. He just impressed me the way he walked and shit. Like, I'm the bad, I'm the goddamn Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp or not, in order to get the case into federal court, Lampton will need an eyewitness to confirm that at least part of the crime occurred on federal land, in this case, in the Homochitta National Forest. We continued speaking with people throughout the community in search of a witness and to learn more about the atmosphere at the time. It wasn't difficult to find talkers. Often, they chose to speak to us, approaching in a friendly manner, accompanied by a kind of grace I found particular to the South, but also steeped in a healthy dose of suspicion of strangers, particularly northern ones. You just had to stop and see, when you live in a small town, you just stop and see what people are doing. <laughs> you always stop and see. And, uh... Because Meeble's a good little town. It's, 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 a, it's a nice little town. This is downtown Rebel Ku Klux Klan, Mississippi. Main Street. I'm a resident now of Adams County. But I know everything about this place. Okay, well, let me tell you what happened in 1964. Thomas tells the story of his brother's death again and again, adding new details every time as we slowly uncover them. And those two guys are still alive. That's terrible. It's terrible. It wasn't nothing like that happened around here. Zeal was from down on, down around Bunkley. Oh, did you ever work at around a paper mill? No, I worked at Armstrong. The International Paper Company in Natchez counted many Klansmen among its white employees and was a major marshalling space for white supremacy in the region. Charles Marcus Edwards worked there, and the Armstrong Tire and Rubber Plant, also in Natchez, was another main organizing space for the Klan. You think you're going to hear me stand up here and preach to you about hanging a nigger, a black man, Negro, Afro-American, any way you want to put it? There were a number of Klan groups. The White Knights, like you're hearing at this rally. Also, the Original Knights, United Clans of America, and so on. Sometimes they were connected, sometimes not and at times fought with each other. And members changed their affiliations often due to disputes over money, ideology, and control. The White Knights organized themselves in a quasi-military fashion and different cells of operation. According to FBI documents, members of the SEAL family, including James Ford SEAL, were part of the more violent cells. What do the people in Meadville and Roxy think about having James Ford Seal and Charles Marcus Edwards living in their community. I think the general opinion is that they, they were guilty and they just got off. I think that's pretty much the, the feeling everywhere, blacks and whites probably. Deep down in their heart they wouldn't tell you, but I think most of them believe that they are that guilty and they should have been convicted. Margaret King worked as a chancery clerk in the courts of Franklin County in the 1960s. We're sitting in the polished dining area of her home near Meadville. Her hair has recently been styled and she wears narrow glasses. Well-spoken and forthright, she's a force to be reckoned with. It was a very, very tense time. It's a very tense time. You just, it was the first time that you didn't really feel comfortable and free and, uh, you know, not afraid. 
and uh, so it, 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 was, it was pretty bad. I think the blacks and the whites both were afraid. I press Margaret and everyone else I meet about Edwards and Seal living in Franklin County. How could a community live alongside people who they suspect were involved in a grisly murder for over 40 years? It was a law enforcement. They just, you know, they had a way to, to, do, to do things, you know, to keep from bringing it up and, and uh, you know, just postpone and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Some members of the establishment, like Franklin County Sheriff Wayne Hutto, were later found to be sympathetic to, or even members of the Klan. From the moment of the Mississippi burning or Myburn case onward, the FBI began a process of infiltration that would eventually help to weaken the 1960s Klan to the point where it was difficult to find a member who was not an informant, paid or otherwise. But before that point came, in the late 60s and early 70s, the Klan was able to rule its membership and the citizens it drew from with a relentless threat of violence and terroristic acts. So much so that Ronnie Harper's predecessor in the position of district attorney, Lennox Foreman, was directly affected by it. Okay, Mr. Foreman, who was a, a DA at the time, he was very afraid and when Lennox had to go to Natchez for a court case or something, which was in his district, he was never alone. He had the highway patrolman with him, or he went to the wait station where the men were working there, law enforcement people. He, he, he wanted them to be with him. I think he'd been threatened. I'm sure he'd been threatened. It was all secret, but I think he, he probably was so, so afraid he's afraid of his shadow. The late former Natchez police chief, J.T. Robinson, a man once renowned for standing up to the Klan, but who now sits before me in this interview enfeebled by a stroke, used the exact same wording to describe the former district attorney. What can you tell me about uh, Lennox Foreman? Did you know Lennox Foreman? Yeah, I sure did. Scared of his shadow. Lennox could have put a lot of pressure on the Klan, you know. He, would, he just didn't do it. But now, you know, after I got older, I know why. He lost his house, his cattle, and everything else out there in Franklin County. Those summers used to laugh about how they'd drive by and shoot a cow in the belly. JT says that the Klan used to shoot Foreman's cattle with a 22 rifle, wounding them just enough so they would die slowly. With a 22 short, take them about a week to die, you know. So you think Lennox Foreman was afraid of the Klan? I sure do. Whether you were black or white, poor or in a high-ranking position in the justice system, the one word that seemed to sum up the 1960s in Mississippi was fear. Hi there. Can I help you? Uh, are you Mary Lou Webb? I am. Oh, hi, Mary Lou. I'm Dave Ridge, and I called you from Toronto. Uh, about a film I'm working on, about Thomas Moore's brother. Yes. And you said I could look at through your archives, your news archives? And I said you could go to the library. Mary Lou Webb is a petite white woman with the demeanor of an angry Sunday school teacher. She's also the owner and editor of the Franklin Advocate, the local newspaper of record in Franklin County. In the days following the national news that James Ford Seal was still alive and free, Mary Lou Webb wrote an article speaking, according to her, on behalf of the community. She writes in part, 
The Franklin Advocate has weighed the issues and decided not to revisit the 1960s racial incidents which took place in this county and southwest Mississippi. The editor sees no new evidence, no reason to put a new generation through painful memories. In my mind, now this is my mind and I, you know, I can do this because I have the paper and I have to think about everybody's welfare. And my husband and I lived through hell here before. We really did. The whole county lived through this before. Okay, that was years ago. People have moved on. And it doesn't do any good and it's not going to do that, that dead man any good for his ancestors to get in a squabble with the whites again. There's no good in that. So you think the people in the town agree with you? By and large. Really? I do. Because everybody, you know, there's too much trouble in the world to bring this up again. You know, every time I go to an airport and, and try to buy something from a vendor or I use the restroom and it's, and it's clean, there's nobody speaking English. We have given every single solitary job that once belonged to Americans to somebody from overseas. And if we went over there, they wouldn't do that. They'd have better sense than we have. That's what we ought to be worried about, not something that happened 50 years ago, almost, but something that's happening here and now. You're welcome to look at those things. They're over there in the library. Okay. And you're welcome in this building, but. I just think we're beating a dead dog. We're just beating a dead dog in pursuing the D. Moore case, says Mary Lou Webb. Is it fear of kicking the hornet's nest, or anger that it's about to be kicked? Just you figure out how you're going to do there it. He is right there. You think that's him? Huh? Yep. You want to do it? Hell yeah, I'll do it. Go. We're going back to the intersection and turn around and we're going to approach Jane Ford Seal from the public highway. And then I will confront him and tell him, I will tell him who I am and ask him would he be willing to talk to me about the death of Charles Eddie Moore on neutral ground. Anxious to move forward despite the fears and doubts and perceived inaction that have pained him so over the past 40 years, Thomas and I head to James Ford Seal's place, or rather the roadside on the hill above the RV where Seal stays. Even people in, in Mississippi, Franklin County and other counties that when you mention the word James Seal, it's kind of like, you know, this is an outlaw, but yet He's accepted in his community because nobody want to encounter him. Well, let's do it. Fuck it. Motherfucker, let me go. Give my goddamn stick. Where my stick at? I just want the stick to be a symbol. Once I make the confrontation, we're going to have to get on out of there now. Fearing Seal might have a gun at the ready, Thomas decides to surprise him from a safe distance. Hey, sir! Hey, sir! Hello? I'm, I'm calling for James Ford Seal! I'm looking for James 
Ford Seal. My name is Thomas James Moore. I'm the brother of Charles Eddie Moore. Son of a bitch ran inside, a whole bunch of, all of them. They ran inside. Why don't you come out and be a man? All I want to do is talk to you, punk. I'm not going to do you like you cowardly did, though, guys. Charles Moore and Henry D. I hope to see you in court. I had followed Thomas at a distance with my camera to give him time to talk to Seal without being a distraction. After Seal and the others he was with ran inside the RV, Thomas paused for a moment with his walking stick, then began running back to the van. <laughs> I feel good doing it, well. I feel good, I shit. The inscription on Charles Eddie Moore's headstone says, anywhere in glory is all right with me. So confronting him anywhere, anytime is all right with me. All right. We'll come back here to James Ford Seals, but next time we wouldn't be alone. And we'd be seeing Charles Marcus Edwards soon too, though not in the way I first expected. What a day. What a day. You have been listening to Episode 3, The Hornet's Nest. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to see a detailed map of the locations relevant to the case. And subscribe to SKS on your favorite podcast app. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by David Ridgen. The series is also produced by Chris Oak, Steph Kampf, Amal Dulich, Eunice Kim, an executive producer, Arif Nurani, and mixed by Cecil Fernandez. Our theme song is Terrorized by Willie King. Now you talk about terror. I think you talk about terror. People have been terrorized all my days. Oh. All my days Ain't scared of nobody Cause I want my freedom I want my freedom I want my freedom Ain't scared of nobody Cause I want my freedom I want my freedom now For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.